For several weeks, we've been studying the passages written by the Apostle Paul regarding offerings. We have discovered that his counsel was for the newly formed churches, and that counsel was to give money to help relieve the human suffering taking place among the believers in Jerusalem. Now when we study this, we must remind ourselves, when we look at the passages of Scripture, our first order of business is to understand what it meant to the people back then and not to read into it our current day experiences. But if we can understand what it meant to the people back then, then we can take the principles that are there and apply it to our lives today. So when we study the Apostle Paul's counsel regarding offerings, we noted that he is not talking about offerings to a denominational structure. He is not talking about supporting a worldwide work. He is talking about an offering that would be taken up in the local congregation to help brothers and sisters in the city of Jerusalem who were suffering. The purpose of the offering was to relieve human suffering. Also, we have learned that the offering was not given to raise money to do evangelism. The offering was raised to help the believers that were there already, but they were suffering. Now it doesn't mean we shouldn't support a worldwide structure. It doesn't mean we shouldn't give money to evangelism. All that has its place, but the passages we are studying regarding the Apostle Paul, we must understand contextually what is going on. This offering was to relieve human suffering and human suffering of fellow believers. We learned that the church members gave because of three things. Number one, they believed in the cause. They believed their money would actually make a difference, so they were willing to give. Number two, they trusted the leadership they believed that the Apostle Paul or whoever else would be responsible for the distribution, that it would be done justly. It would be done correctly. Number three, they believed there was accountability. There was an openness. There was an understanding of how it would be used and who would be the recipients. And so willingly and gladly they gave they gave for those three reasons. I told you in this series that I have challenged our church board members that they have to demonstrate a, a need for the money from the church budget. And the way to demonstrate it is to, to show that the ministries they oversee and the money that comes into those ministries has relieved human suffering. It has changed human lives. It has helped people come to know the Lord and walk with the Lord. And it is helping to relieve human suffering. If 
our board leaders cannot demonstrate that, they will not receive any money. You must know that when you give, you are giving to a cause that you believe in, to leaders that you can trust, and to a system of accountability. I promise you that is going to happen. In fact, is already happening here in the church. We learned that in the New Testament, as I mentioned earlier, the money was given to relieve human suffering, and it went for believers. Now last week we had an Easter service, so I am referring to two weeks before. Thus the reason I'm rehearsing before you some of the things, to bring you back to that channel in your mind. The illustration I used was Christian education, of applying the principle of today's setting. I used my grandson. You want to be used again? Come here. All right, he's got to put his sandals on. Come on. All right, this handsome guy here is big. He's in kindergarten. And you know, this year in kindergarten, going to this Christian school, he has learned all kinds of truths about God, about Jesus, and Connor has learned songs. He walks around singing songs about Jesus. He walks around telling stories that he's learned from the Bible. He walks around rehearsing the wonderful things happening in his class. He also can pray like an adult. All this he's learned in that Christian school. And you know what he's decided? He wants to go to heaven. He wants to spend eternity in heaven. Now imagine if he was deprived the opportunity to go to a Christian school. That was the illustration I used the last time. We're going to come back to that. Now, if you weren't so heavy, I'd keep holding you, but you, you've got to go. All right, buddy. All right, let's give him a hand. We will continue with 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Our passage this week is verses 7 through 9. The last time we were together, we looked at verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me give you some background. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians about a year after he wrote 1 Corinthians. Actually, it was a series of letters, but it's about a year after he wrote 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, he wrote to them about this offering to be taken up to relieve human suffering among the believers in Jerusalem. In chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, he even gives some methodology. 
lay by him in store. You know, put it by yourself on the first day of the week so that when I come, no offering has to be taken. I can just grab it and we're on our way. Now, one year later, he's writing 2 Corinthians. They have not taken up that offering. And so Paul is going to encourage them what they had decided to do a year before was a good thing. Now they need to follow up on it. And in the first six verses of chapter 8, he uses the Macedonians as an example. And we studied that a couple weeks ago. Now he continues the thought. And though he will not mention offering in verse 7, it is implied by the context. And uh, as you will see in the New International Version, it will actually mention it. So let's read verses 7, 8, and 9. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. But what is going on? Let's go to verse 7. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Let me read that to you in the New International Version. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now, this verse, when you just look at it, pick it up, and begin to examine it, you discover an amazing thing. Paul is telling the believers at Corinth that they excel in faith. How do you excel in faith? When I get to heaven, I want to talk to the Apostle Paul about that concept. Because a year after he wrote this, he will write a letter to the church at Rome. And he will tell them that their faith is spoken of throughout the world. What kind of faith does somebody have that is spoken of around the world? What kind of faith is this faith that excels? What does that look like? What does it feel like? Can you hold it? What is that faith like? I have no idea, but I do think I want it. And maybe someday will have it. These folks excelled in faith. It's not all they excelled in. It says they excelled in speech. That means they could communicate in marvelous and wonderful ways. They could share what they understood regarding God. And that apparently was much because they excelled in knowledge. They had a deep understanding of the things of God. These folks are outstanding. They excel in faith. They excel in speech. They excel in knowledge. 
They excel in all diligence. They're workers. They've got their hand on the plow, so to speak. They're supporters. They volunteer. They do what they can. And here's the big one. Here's the headliner. And they also excelled in love. Wow. Man, what would it be like to pastor a church like that? Imagine a body of believers that excel in all these things, faith, speech, knowledge, diligence, and in love? You'd think they had it all. But Paul is saying there's more. See that you abound in this grace also. In other words, excel in this gracious work of giving as well as those other things. In our walk with God, it is possible that we can excel in areas and be completely negligent in other areas. And so Paul is saying, I want you to learn to excel in this area like you do in all these other areas. And we go to the next verse. Verse 8. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Paul is flat out saying this, giving and offering to help relieve human suffering in Jerusalem is not a commandment. It was not a requirement. It was not an order. Nor was it even an expectation. It is an opportunity. And that changes everything. How many of you have grown up in church and you've heard a sermon or two or maybe many about the duty we have to give an offering? Have you ever heard anything like that? It's not here. He's not talking about duty. He's not talking about law. He's not talking about that. He is saying, here is an opportunity. And you know, somehow that just takes the sting out of it. An opportunity. That's a whole different perspective. Here's an opportunity. And then he gives an illustration. The illustration this time is the example of Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. What does he mean when he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Grace can be used to mean power. Grace can be used to mean a number of things, unexpected favor. Grace can be used in many different ways, but there is a way that Paul is using it here that is unique to any other way he uses it in the Bible except in one place. And we find that in the book of Romans. In fact, let's turn to the book of Romans first as we lay a foundation for this. You'll go to the left. You'll go to the left to Romans chapter 6. A very familiar verse, yet extremely important. Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This gift of God being eternal life through Jesus Christ 
is our salvation. God saved the world through His Son. The world was lost, and Jesus came as a light into the world to shine in the darkness. And all who will embrace that light will have life, and they will have life eternal. This is the gift of God. There's nothing we can do to earn this. It is a gift given to us if we will simply embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, go back a chapter to, Matt, to Romans 5, verse 15. Romans 5, verse 15, talking about the gift and talking about grace, we're going to see these tied together. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one, the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The Amplified Version says it this way, God's free gift is not at all to be compared to the trespass. His grace is out of all proportion to the fall of man. For if many died through one man's falling away, much more profusely did God's grace and the free gift that comes through the undeserved favor of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound and overflow to and for many. When Paul says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is talking about Calvary. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about Jesus coming to the world and dying for you and me. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the story. You know about Calvary. You know what happened there. You know all that. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Now, how do we define rich? Rich has many meanings in the English. If this was an edible plant, we could identify that it is rich in fiber and rich in certain nutrients, rich in certain vitamins. Uh, if there was a painting here, we could look at it, we could say its colors are rich. We could bring somebody up here and they could tell you that they are rich in their lives due to the relationships they have and the friends that they've cultivated over the years. Rich has many, many concepts. I went to the dictionary and uh, looked at the word rich and one definition is goods, property, and money in abundance. Goods, property, and money in abundance. And actually, that's what the Bible has in mind here, and I'll show that to you in a moment. How do you measure the wealth of God? Does God own goods? Does God own property? And does God have money in abundance? How do you measure the wealth of God? Could we not say everything is His? It's all His. Jesus had it all. Yet, for our sakes, 
for the Corinthian believers and for us, he became poor. Well, how poor? What does it mean, he became poor? So if we look up the Greek word that is translated poor here, we find it translated in a short story in Matthew chapter, or excuse me, in Mark chapter 12. And here we see a definition of what it meant that Jesus became poor. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came. There's your word, your Greek word right there. One poor widow came and threw in two mites which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to him and said to them, Assuredly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Why? For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. This is teaching us the gospel. When Jesus turned away from the wealth to become poor, he gave everything for us. He gave all that he had for us. And not only did he give, but he took. He took our sins. He took our guilt. He took our shame. He took our death. He took that and he gave us his wealth. He gave us life eternal. He gave us forgiveness of our sins. And the Bible even goes on to say, we are joint heirs with him. What he has in wealth in heaven, he has given to us. That's what we're looking forward to. So how do we measure the wealth of God? We can't. How do we measure how poor he became? We can't. We'll study it for eternity. The sacrifice of Jesus will be our study throughout eternity. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Let's look at this contextually, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus giving of himself was the ultimate expression of an offering to relieve human suffering. Right? The giving of himself was the ultimate expression of an offering to relieve human suffering. Jesus did not do that because of a command. Jesus did not do that because of an order. Jesus did not do that because of a requirement. Jesus did not do that because of an expectation. Jesus did that because of an opportunity. An opportunity to save us. An opportunity to have us with him throughout eternity. He gave because he excelled in everything. He excelled in faith. He excelled in speech. He excelled in knowledge. He excelled in all diligence. And he excelled in his love for us. And when the opportunity came, he gave everything. And from his giving, 
we receive eternal life. So now let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 9 with that understanding. Verse 7, But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was poor, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So we get it in the context in which Paul gave it. How do we apply this to our lives? What do we do? Well, the first thing we realize is, wouldn't it be fantastic to excel in faith, speech, knowledge, diligence, and love? Nothing negative about that. That's a prayer worth praying. Paul, however, is saying even with all that, add to it. The sincerity of our love can be expressed by the opportunities that lie before us. There is no commandment to require this, but there are opportunities before us. Giving to the church to help relieve human suffering is not a command. It is an opportunity. An opportunity to show our love. An opportunity to become more like Jesus. Now let's apply this in a very practical way. I've been praying about this for some time. And I believe this is what the Lord wants me to say and what he wants me to do. And that is, let's go back again to the example of Christian education. Imagine the parents of a six or seven-year-old and that child is going to enter into school. These parents are in a situation financially they simply cannot afford to have that child in a Christian school. Maybe the child went to kindergarten this year. Maybe they were in preschool. Maybe they were in first grade. So the parents have seen the effect of that Christian school upon the soul of their child. But now they can't afford it. Things have happened in their life, whatever. They cannot afford to put that child in school. Where are they going to put the, put the child? That child will be put into a school where you cannot openly speak about God. That child will be put in a school where aberrant lifestyles will be taught that child as being the norm, and if you are against it or disagree, you are abnormal. That child is going to be exposed to more filth and awfulness than you can imagine on a daily basis, over and over and over again. And instead of singing the songs of Canaan, they're going to be singing the songs of the pagans. What suffering must come upon the soul and the heart of the parent facing that dilemma. They can't afford it. What do they do? They come to the church, and many come to the church. Last year we had $14,000 in our Worthy Student Fund, and the committee met, and it's pretty much divvying out, well, $40 for you a month, and maybe $70 for you. And, and basically the whole process was, let's take the poorest of the poor and try to give them something, and then we'll work our way back. Something is wrong with that picture. 
We have a need. The need is that in this church family, there should not be one child not in Christian education. Here's my dream. I shared with you. you there's no command I can give. There's no expectation. But I give you an opportunity. Between now and the first day of school, let's raise $120,000. Put it in our worthy student fund and make sure that every single child in this church is in Christian education. And maybe, by God's grace, we can even bring some relief to the families who have their children in Christian education now. How many of you think God would be pleased? Wouldn't he be pleased? Wouldn't he bless us individually? Wouldn't he bless our families? And wouldn't he bless our church? I believe God is running to and fro across the land, looking, looking, looking for who it is he can show himself strong to. Let's let it be us. We have an opportunity. Let's show our love to God by that opportunity.